we're in chapter 13 in our study of, of Romans. And um, I said, I don't know if you guys online heard of me. It, it's somewhat ironic, I suppose, that we divine providence that we are discussing the role of government and our re- relationship to it as Christians right after an election. But uh, we're going to try to stay away from the political aspects if we can. I think we may have just started this last week, but... Um, well, we finished up, uh, but I don't think we referenced that, but we didn't... I don't I, yeah, because I drew on the board, which uh, they sent out with the invitation and Fred included and all that, just a little diagram I drew on the board that may or may not have been helpful, but I don't want to go over all that again, but it is important for us to remember the, the big picture of God's economy of things. God has created two, three institutions, three, I maybe should put it, three primary institutions through which he does his work. And in this order, uh, the family, the state, and then the church. I leave Israel out of this uh, only because Israel is not an institution. It's a people. It's the covenant people of God. And that, so that's a little bit of a different subject and just talking about institutional authority, which is what I'm talking about. And just another quick review. Each one of these institutions is an institution of authority. God is a God of order and authority. He is not a God of chaos. He is not a God of disorder. Now, unfortunately and tragically, chaos and disorder enter because of sin. But God's ideal is that each institution has an authority And second, it has a stewardship responsibility before God. And we briefly talked about, uh, and it wasn't complete at all, but we briefly highlighted a couple of the stewardship responsibilities. As we move into chapter 13, the Apostle Paul does two things in this paragraph, and it begins with verse 1, of course, and goes through verse 7. And it is really, guys, there's an immense amount of material in these seven verses. And in the two things that he does, number one, he gives us a summary, and it's only that, but a summary of how we should look at the state. And then secondly, he answers this question, what is our stewardship responsibility to the state? Well, another way of putting it, what's our ethical duty to the state? And it is so important, and I I know this is something you already know, but it's so important as we try to give God's perspective on things, that God institutes the state, institutes government as a blessing. And that is often a hard thing for people to say, what do you mean government's a blessing? But as a blessing, because it has a responsibility to God. And you can have a non-Christian ruler rule very well and very effectively. Because he's doing, whether he's conscious of it or not, he's doing what God wants him to do. And that's what Paul's going to answer. Martin Luther, uh, who, you know, one of the key figures in the Reformation, Luther said several times to the congregation, I would rather be ruled by a competent Turk than an incompetent Christian. You have to think about that, because the Turks were the Muslims knocking at the door of Eastern Europe and will soon go into Eastern Europe in, in large numbers. But that's an, when you think about that, that's, man, He'd rather be ruled by a competent Turk than incompetent Christian. Only because God has stewardship responsibilities for government too. And you don't have to be a Christian to pull those responsibilities. And so whenever 
any institution fulfills those responsibilities, God's common grace brings blessing. Because that's how God... That's not, Sandra. That's a jet. So just quit, quit looking out the window. I think that was a jet, wasn't it? Um, and so uh, with these introductory comments, let's look at what he says. And this is, by the way, in the imperative mood. This is a command. That each person be subject to the governing authorities. And he does not say let every Christian. He says let every person. So it's a general, generic statement. People are supposed to submit the governing authority. And you say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, he gives you the reason, actually gives you two reasons why you should do that. Reason number one, for, it's a gar, you could translate it because, there is no authority except from God. Now, now man, that is, that is a remarkable, all-encompassing statement. All authority comes from God. And so, there are a whole bunch of corollaries to that you can think about. If all authority comes from God, then God is into structure. He's into structure that brings order and stability for human beings. God does, put it another way, God is not into every human being being an authority unto themselves, being autonomous. Autonomous means self-law. You rule yourself. God doesn't say that in Scripture. <laughs> God creates humanity as a community. I mean, I see that in the beginning of things in, in, in Genesis. But with that, he creates an authority structure. So, broad statement, there is no authority except from God. Number two reason, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so, you, you, I mean, again, these are very broad stroke statements, and it can fit anything that you're, you're talking about. But when it comes to the state, which is what he's about to begin to talk about in verse 2, he gives us a very important principle about his creation activity and about what he does in creating institutional issues. These are set up for our good. We may chafe at it. We may resist it, but in chafing at it, resisting it, we're chafing at it, resisting against God. God sets up authority structures. And I cannot, I can't say this, I keep saying it. God is not a God of chaos and disorder. God does not like chaos and disorder. And it's very clear in Scripture that chaos and disorder is one of the results of sin. It affects the relationships, it affects institutional structures, it affects everything. So if Verse 1 is true. Verse 2, therefore. Because verse 1 is true, therefore, he who resists authorities resists what God has appointed. That's an uncomfortable statement. And those who resist will incur judgments. Now, probably in context, incur judgment from that authority but ultimately from God. So if we resist the authority structures of life, which is not pleasing to God, then there will be consequences of that. And if you think of the authority structures, 
Now, I'm going beyond this text, but just real quickly. Family, a family is an authority structure. There are parents and there are children. And the children are supposed to come under the authority of the parents. And that, that authority is a very important part of the family structure. And if kids push back on that, if they resist that, the text just says, they're not only resisting mom and dad, they're resisting God. They're going against what God wants. I mean, this is, and, and this is the issue with sin. Because what sin does is it enters into the human being and anyone is institutional structures, we naturally just push back to authority. I mean, my daughter is a, she's 30, you know, 34 years old, but my daughter is a very strong-willed child. We saw that about six months into her life. This little girl is always going to chafe at anything we say. And even today, at 34 years, she's mother and all this. You say something, she, she arches her back, and immediately you know she's chafing at that. And yet she's 34. She's on her own. She's married. She's her own family. But that's just Joanna. And if God would not have gotten a hold of Joanna and had channeled all this incredibly gifted, strong-willed determination, she'd be in jail. I don't think she would. But you know what I mean? She just doesn't. She doesn't like authority. She, that's just the way she's made. You can tell her from me that 40 years later, she'll still be the same. <laughs> okay. You, you know that from experience. I know that from experience. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but th this is really important. So what we must think about it, as Christians in all of these structures, and we're now about to start talking about the state, we must understand that even when human beings push back and chafe and, and resist authority, God is not pleased with that. Now, there, there are exceptions, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of that in a minute. But this is such an important principle to understand. God created government for a purpose. And we have to understand as Christians what that purpose is. We owe an obligation to the state. And that obligation is going to be fleshed out in these verses. So you have, again, the response to governing authorities is the response of submission. God gives that authority as his gracious provision for humanity. He instituted the people that are there are part of his plan. And to resist it is not to resist it with impunity, but expect the state and God to not be pleased. Now he gets very specific in verse 3. For rulers, now the term there that I read from the ESV translation, but the, the term there that translated rulers is talking about political rulers, you know, governmental authority, that's what he's talking about, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Well, then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. So, I mean, another way of paraphrasing that, the state is given by God with enormous authority. You are to submit to that authority, but you should never be afraid of that authority if you're a good citizen. And if, you're, if you are resisting that authority, expect the state to push back. But be a good citizen. Now, he's not done with this because he wants to give us a very important piece of information. 
an insight, again, into how God looks at this. Verse 4. I shouldn't be afraid of government. If I'm a good citizen, I shouldn't be afraid. Why? Because this, this ruler is God's servant for your good. And that word servant is diakonos. Diakonos is a helper. Literally, in the original Greek language, it's someone who waits on tables, which is a perfect illustration of a servant. But, I mean, do you, do you see that? God is looking at the state, the people that are in the state, the people that populate governing authorities, as his diakonos, his servant, for our good. Authority, and again, you can fit that into any one of the institutional structures, but authority is God's good gift to humanity. Because authority is to serve us. Now, this again is the model of the model of leadership in the Bible is servant leadership. That an authority serves. That's what it's supposed to do. And he's t- talking conceptually here, but it's a very important. But if, I'm continuing now in verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Because he, meaning the ruler, does not bear the sword in vain. And the word for the sword, the, the term there for sword in Greek is my karion. It's the sword of justice. This is not the Roman sword that the soldier, the legions carried around in battle. This is the Roman sword, I'll be very blunt here, this is the Roman sword of execution. Macarion, this is the sword that was used as a sword of justice. And in the symbols of of the Roman Empire, you always saw a fasces. We get our word fascism from that, but the fasces was a bundle of rods tied together, and in the middle was an an axe-like sword. That represented Rome. That's the word Paul's using here. That the governing authorities administer the sword, the macarion, of justice. So they are carrying out God's God's talionic justice, which is the system of justice in the Bible, and they are to administer that. And in doing that, they are a servant of God. Now, he's not done with this. Because he, I'm in the middle of verse 4, where he, again, the ruler, is the servant of God, the same word, diakonos, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we're beginning to now, if we want to distill it down to some operational phrases, the state is to promote justice and thwart evil. That is the primary stewardship responsibility of the state. And if it does that, even if the rulers are not Christians, God will bless that in his common grace because they're doing what he wants them to do. If they do not do that, then expect chaos and disorder in your society. Again, whether they're believers or not, if they do not do what God expects them to do, again, whether they have a personal relationship or not, is not his point. Because when Paul's writing this, and he's giving these instructions, the seizure in Rome is Nero. 
And no one would call Nero a righteous ruler, for goodness sakes. But Paul's just saying, he doesn't say, now, I mean everybody except Nero, I don't mean him. That's not what he's saying. He's laying down transcultural principles here for us to think about as we, we decide and, and consider and reflect on the role of government and our role as citizens. But notice that an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words, this, this ruler is God's instrument. God is looking at that ruler as an instrument of his justice, carrying out his wrath on what is happening among sinful people. The disorder and chaos that to bring you, God wants that stopped. Therefore, now I'm in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Is that word submission? Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And that it's interesting he brings that up. Paul's, the cut word conscience is used 31 times in the New Testament. Almost all, except for a couple of times in the book of Hebrews, the only time it's used is by Paul. Paul's the only one who uses it. Conscience is very important to him. Remember, conscience is that, that we talked, uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 2. I don't know if you remember that. That conscience is one of those important sources of God's revelation. Because he puts the sense of innate sense of right and wrong in our hearts, and our conscience becomes our guide based on that. But the Bible says what we do is we harden our conscience. We suppress the truth, harden our conscience, so that innate sense of right and wrong that God places in us, we reject it. We suppress it. So what Paul is saying, this is really, really insightful here. That is you, because he's writing to Christians. As you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is now informing your conscience, it's back to operating the way it's supposed to operate, then that becomes an innate sense. You just immediately know my role is to respond in my duty and obligation to the state because it's God's instrument. And so it's just, it's, it's really quite a, a marvelous insight into, again, the transformation that's occurring in our lives when we come to faith in Christ, including the transformation of our conscience. Our conscience is back to functioning the way it's supposed to function. Because before we came to Christ, our conscience had become hardened. We suppressed the truth. It was no longer working the way it was supposed to work. Now it's back to working the way it's supposed to work. When I say all that, does that make sense? I mean, you see what I'm saying? That's something that's really an important issue. That's why Paul keeps driving that home, too. All right. Now, without question, the most unpopular part of this paragraph, verse 6. For because of this, you pay taxes. Don't you wish that were not in the Bible? You also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. We saw in verse 4, two times, servant of God. Now he uses a different Greek word. Ministers of God. Hytorgoi is the word. I know that doesn't mean anything. But it's, it's a unique term that means, this is extraordinary, they, as ministers of God, they're collecting the taxes in God's name. They're supporting, they're making possible, they're financing the role that government's supposed to have in our lives. 
Jesus says the same thing when he was asked the question by the Pharisees and the Herodians, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He orders Peter to go fishing, and they pull a stator out of the, out of the Sea of Galilee and pays the tax. And he goes on and says, well, you render to Caesar the things of Caesar, you render God the things that are God. You have an ethical duty to pay taxes, and I'm going to do that, and he does. So, I mean, this again is, we again, not getting into anything about taxation policies, but you got to remember that Rome, Rome did not collect taxes fairly. I mean, Rome's taxation system was absolutely horrific. Matthew was one of their tax collectors, and Matthew bid for the job. You bid for the job, and you got the job if you had the highest bid. And then when Matthew, Matthew was a tax farmer, he franchised out the tax. But Matthew was the wealthiest of all the disciples. When he decided to follow Jesus, he gave up the most lucrative possible job he could have in Galilee, because he lived up in Galilee. I mean, I believe what he gave up. But Jesus touched his heart. Jesus, you know, well, you know the story. So anyway, I mean, it's just, he's saying this to people in the Greco-Roman world. You pay your taxes to Caesar. But he doesn't do he doesn't do good things with my money. Is, is he say except when you know they're not using your money right? He doesn't say that because the Roman Empire was not using that money fairly or equitably by any stretch. And well, anyway, it's just it's just we have to keep thinking about who he's talking to and what this meant. But pay attention. And then he, he itemizes things. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes do. And that word is property and poll tax. Property tax, we know what that means. Poll tax is a head tax. Every, every individual has to pay a tax annually. So that's that word. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. That's a different Greek word. These would be the customs taxes. We would call them more like sales taxes in, in the Greco-Roman world. So you have the property and head taxes or poll taxes, pay those. And then you have the, the, again, the best way to think about it in our context, where you like a sales tax, pay those. And then he adds two other things. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So not only do you pay your taxes, and the Apostle Paul talks about that in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Titus, teach your people to respect their rulers. Teach your people to honor the rulers. Except Joe Biden. Right? I mean, that's in the Bible, isn't it? Except Joe Biden. I'm being really facetious there. But it's just, these are things that we don't, it, it doesn't say agree, it doesn't say support, it just says respect. And honor. If God put that person in authority, then you're honoring what God has done. You may not agree. You may think he's a terrible ruler. may or may not be, whatever the context is. It's, it's how does the Christian look at that? The Christian is to be an agent of God's grace in life. And as there was a, just a great, uh, one of the very early church, church fathers, his name was Justin. He became a nickname Justin the Martyr. He lived about 100 A.D., Justin was influenced by John. But anyway, he wrote two books. One book was to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. 
The other book was to the Roman Senate. And the thesis of both those works was, don't persecute Christians. They are the best citizens in the empire. And he quoted from this. He alludes to all the things that are in the New Testament, as well as examples in the Old Testament. Christians make the best citizens because they understand that God put authority into their lives. They will pay their tax. And this is, I mean, this was an extraordinary act by an early apologist of Christianity that Christians, because of what the Apostle Paul said here, Christians make good citizens. Don't persecute them. Well, as you know, Rome didn't listen to that. Persecuting became relentless, and eventually, as you move into the second century, led to widespread martyrdom. And so, as we, we look at this, if if you if you look at verse six and verse seven, you have four evidences of submission. Evidence number one is we pay our property and poll taxes. Evidence number two, we pay our sales taxes. Evidence number three, we respect. Evidence number four, we honor. It doesn't mean we agree. It doesn't mean we we don't chafe at what they're saying. We don't like, that's not what it says, but it's respect and honor. That's different. All right, now. Yeah, oh, please. This goes back to verse one. It's a note here. And it's talking about submit. And then the note, this is right. It says, this does not say that only certain forms of government are ordained, which is what you said. God established and upholds the principle of government, even though some governments do not fulfill its desire. That's right. The question I've asked before as a Christian, when does it become a time where you will join through history, governments have been overthrown, and Christians have participated. To me, there is a point where you don't submit. Well, I think the principle in, in the scriptures is uh, as, as simply as I can deduce it from the word of God, is we obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state. You have examples of that. You have like Peter and John are in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone back to the Father. They've begun their ministry for fully great commission to start Jerusalem. They go to Jesus and Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin said, don't preach Jesus as the Messiah. What do they do? They preach Jesus as the Messiah. And what happened? They're arrested. And they say, we told you not to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter stands up and says, look, we understand what you're saying, but we have to obey God. And if that means we disobey you, we're still going to obey God. In the Old Testament, you have Daniel, in the early chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel, and then you have three other Jewish, part of that initial wave of Jewish uh, 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 Individuals taken to Babylon in 605 BC, Daniel, and then their, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember? They were chosen as the best and the brightest from Judah to be in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he puts them through this training class and so on. He comes, they're supposed to eat non kosher food. What do they say? We can't eat that non kosher food. We'll just be satisfied with bread and water. And, and it's an, it an incredible thing because that could have led to their execution. But the amazing thing is God preserved them. There's a special guy in Nebuchadnezzar's court that took a likeness to these guys. Then you, you go forward a couple chapters, and again, Nebuchadnezzar, after the great image of Daniel 2, builds an image, image of himself. What does he say? At the sound of the instruments, bow down. Now Daniel is in here. He must have been on a diplomatic mission or something. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to bow down. And he said, I'm going to throw you into that huge kiln. 
you're going to die. You're going to be around. Look, he said, listen, our God has the power to save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down to you. And you know, just like great spoilers thrown in all that stuff. So, you know, Bill, the principle is we obey the state until it's sin to obey the state. And one of the very important things about the American in the, in the 1770s, when you get to the summer of 1776, in, in the typical history book, you say, well, this was, a, this was about political liberty. It was about political liberty, but it was equally as important about religious liberty. Because the Quebec Act of 1764 had changed the boundary of Quebec, pushed it right down to the boundary of Massachusetts and upstate New York, colony New York and all that. So right across the border were Roman Catholics. Well, you know, in the 1600s, that was like a Muslim moving next door to you type of thing. They chafed at that. And then, the, and then Britain said, we're going to put a resident Anglican bishop in the colony. When already at all these expressions of the Protestant Reformation are already in the colony, Lutherans and Calvinists and Huguenots and all these other No, because we don't want a state church. And that, that was part of what was motivating them. The, the government is going to impose a religious practice on us. And we have experienced the, I don't think they would put it this way, but we've experienced the freedom of our religious choice. And we don't want a state church. And one of the very first things you see in the Constitution of 1787 was the, the amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion. We're not going to have a state church. And the obligation of the state is to protect religious liberty. Everything free exercise it up. Now I'm saying all that because that is part of how to think about what these early leaders, as they were processing everything that happened, what the British Empire was doing after the French and Indian War and in 1763. And that, that gives you the way to think about that. It isn't a raw act of political revolution. It is, although it was that to some extent, it was also a response to what the state church of England and what the crown supporting the state church wanted to do in the colony. And it's crazy because the British Empire had let the colonies alone, what's called salutary neglect, for about 70 years. And all of a sudden, after the French Indian War, the government of England's in debt, and they're, they're stationing troops, and well, you guys should help pay for this, and all the stuff that followed. It's a very complicated set of motivations of why they reached that decision in summer 1776. Our only option is to issue a declaration of independence from the empire. But I think, Bill, when I was in leadership at the school I, I led, I had brought in a guy named Liz, Liz, Lynn Buzzard, who was head of the Christian Legal Society, to give a series of lectures. What were, I, I got some grant money for it, but we're called the Staley Lecture Series. We had this every year. And what he did is he helped the students understand the role of government, but also, and it's important to talk about this phrase, civil disobedience. When do you choose to obey the state? And he, he had, it was tremendous. He had seven questions that we should ask ourselves. I incorporated those into my book on ethics. But it's just, it's, it's valuable. And, and among other things, he just said, do not choose to disobey the authority of the state flippantly. A Christian has to really think deeply about this. Because if you're going to choose to disobey willingly an authority structure set up by God, you had better be convicted in your heart that it is, it is my duty to obey God, not the state. Is what the state, is that really, and he counts, give, get a lot of counsel, 
spent a lot of time thinking through this. And I think that's valuable. So, I mean, but the principle that I have always used is we obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state. But you and I didn't have to evaluate what does that mean. Right. And to just impulsively react because you don't like taxes. And this is also very important because, again, you go to what Paul is saying here. The Roman Empire did not use tax money wisely. There is no doubt about that. And so we can say, well, I don't like how the government's spending my money. That's probably true, but I doubt any government in any time of history has ever spent money wisely. That's not what Paul's saying. They have a responsibility. If they don't fulfill the responsibility, God's going to deal with it. But you do your ethical obligation. All right. But you did answer the question. Good. For me, anyway. Good. This is a difference between not liking taxes and submitting to an unjust government to a point where it goes against your faith and what it, we it, believe is. If you are being asked to do something that is a clear violation of a command God's given you, which you know, is in the Bible, then that's where you begin thinking about whether or not you're going to choose to disobey the state. Yeah. And, and, the, and the issue, too, is always, but Dr. President brought that out, is that if you choose the path of civil disobedience, you also must be willing to accept the consequence of that, which might be martyrdom. Right. Because that's what the early church was doing. The early church was not obeying the empire. When the empire said, don't preach Jesus. In, the, in this Roman province, don't preach Jesus Christ. We worship all the gods of Rome, and we have to obey Jesus. He told us the Great Commission. Okay, if you do, then we're going to burn you at the stake. That's all right. I mean, it was just that, but there's an, if you choose to disobey the stake willing, willingly, then you must also be willing to accept the consequence of disobeying the stake, which might be martyrdom or minimally jail. You follow what I'm saying? And you well, all do. That, that's current today, too, like in Russia and China. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, and in in Muslim countries, uh, yeah, there, yeah, that's a very uh, well. Anyway, that that it's it's very much a part in America, at least for the most part. We we haven't faced anything like that for the most part in, in the history of our republic. We may in the future, but for the most part, we haven't. But you get outside of of, of the United States. I mean, I've traveled quite a bit in the world in my life, and, and you, if you're in other countries, you, you begin to realize the remarkable freedoms we do enjoy. And, 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 and that opposition of the state to biblical Christianity in Muslim countries and in, in, in many parts, Russia now, they've changed so much in the last decade and a half. Because when, I don't know if you remember, when the Iron Curtain collapsed and the Soviet Union collapsed, Christians, I had a lot of my students go to Russia. We, we sponsored several dozen students in, in the early 90s that went to Russia. They were involved in remarkable, remarkable evangelistic enterprises. Crusade was sponsoring, navigators were sponsoring. Like, all my students were involved in a lot. It was fantastic. But, but not anymore. <laughs> Putin will not tolerate evangelicals at all. He's throwing them in jail because the, the Russian Orthodox Church is joining with him again. Which is another remarkable historical development, but and the same with China. You know, China was open for a while. Today, it's a lot more difficult uh, than it used to be. And then, of course, you get into the to the uh, Muslim countries, um, 
And even actually, even in Israel, uh, even, pure evangelical Christian preachers are not welcome. Evangelical, oh, they want you to come as tourists. Come, spend your money, we love you. But you start setting up you know, in the Jaffa Gate and start preaching about Jesus, they're probably going to arrest you or at least ask you to leave. You know, uh, but they want you as tourists. But uh, anyway, I'm being a little bit funny there. So with these, uh, with these seven verses down, I mean, this is, uh, there are, let me put, I mentioned this, earlier. let me put it this way. There are transcultural principles here. When I said, you know what I mean by that transcultural? It's, it's, it applies to all people at all time. It transcends culture. This is God, this is how God wants us to look at government. And as we are, as I was talking in response to Bill's question, the exception is the state's authoritarian control meets the barrier when it runs into what God has said. And if he is, if the state is ordering you to do something that's clearly in violation of the command of God, then you choose. I would rather obey God than your rule. But I may have to accept the consequence for that. All right. Are we done with this? You guys online have any questions? Everybody with me? Really should call. We're with you. All right. That's good. Now, verse 8, 9, and 10. It's like a very interesting interjection that Paul shoves into this. What is our relationship to the law? He doesn't mean... The, the codified law of the Roman Empire. He means the law of the, New Test- of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. Owe no one anything except to love one another. The mark of the Christian. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That is a major, major theme of the New Covenant. That love, the law, it's agape here, that love, loving one another, fulfills the law. When Je- Remember when Jesus asked the question by the Pharisee, what's the greatest commandment? Remember that? It's in three of the four Gospels. Jesus' response was, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Leviticus 19.18. So that is that was in the law. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the law when he answers the question. Paul is saying, if you follow Jesus in loving one, because remember what Jesus said. He said to, he said to the disciples in, in, in the upper room discourse, they will know you're my you are my disciples when you love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John says, God is love. And when you love one another, you are exhibiting his quality, his attribute of love. Because God is love. And what Paul is doing is exactly what Jesus is doing. Love is a key part of the old covenant. Love is a defining mark of the new covenant. Because that fulfills the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. That's exactly what Jesus said. Paul isn't creating something new here. He's restating what Jesus said. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is fulfilling the law. Second time he says that. So it's it for some reason, and I'm not sure why he felt the need to do this, perhaps because it's flowing out of the state issue, government issue. He says, I want to make sure you understand as Christians, your relationship with the moral law of God. The moral law of God is not set aside in the new covenant. The moral law of God is fulfilled. And the command of Jesus to love one another. You will know, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so it's just, it's a, it's a very significant interjection into this discussion about authority in our lives, about law, the moral law of God. Same thing Jesus says. Love fulfills the law. And then he adds, or he concludes, I should say, besides this, you know the time. What? He goes on, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. All right, let's just think about, think about this chapter. Authority in our life. God establishes it. We have a duty and obligation to authority, specifically in this case, the state. I've just talked to you now and reminded you that love fulfills the law. It doesn't, it doesn't say it's evil. It fulfills, just like Jesus said. And here's the motivation for your living. The end is near. When he writes in the middle of verse 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, here, here is a reminder of what I hope you remember that I've taught you. Salvation has three dimensions to it. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, let's do our exegesis now. We know that. That's all based on Romans. Okay, it's soterion. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Is he talking about justification? No, he's not. He can't be talking about that. Is he talking about sanctification? Well, probably not. So he's talking about glorification, isn't he? He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ for his church when we will receive our resurrected glorified bodies, glorification. So is his statement, salvation is nearer to us now, and when we first believe, true for you. Absolutely. Every day you live, you're getting closer and closer and closer to the final act of God's salvation in your life, your glorification, when you receive your resurrected, glorified body. And what Paul is doing here, I'm getting excited here. What Paul is doing here is he's giving us the motivation. The future promise of God should affect how you live today. And that's what he's doing. For this we know, that the hour has come to you from wake to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer. Your active, loving obedience of Jesus is to motivate you to do everything I've been saying from chapter 12, verse 1 to now. Because your glorification is nearer than it was when you first believed. 
what I mean, when you think of Chuck and Ellen, Ellen is closer now to going to be with the, Jesus, with the Lord Jesus. And Chuck's motivation, when he sees and, and at some point <coughs> in the near future, will lose his, 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 his earthly spouse and so on. But the, the hope is there's coming a day when Ellen will have a glorified resurrected body. She'll no longer be sick. She'll no longer be in all the situations she's been the last months. That's fantastic hope. That's truth. And when I, you know, and my mother uh, died a couple of years ago, and when, when mom died, she had, had dementia. It was really, it was just so sad <laughs> to see all that. But what we would talk about is mom's going to be like that. She's still going to be in the arms of Jesus. And when she gets her brain, you know, and that's our hope. But if that weren't true, you'd just be in despair. What a horrible, but your last memories of your mom are overcome by the truth. That salvation is near glorification. It used to be. What a fantastic one. How could you live? I don't understand. I do not know how non-Christians face things like that. Well, the, the bottom line is they don't face it very well. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how we reach out to people who don't know Christ. We do it because of the things you just mentioned. Yep. We know it's all true. It's all going to happen. So why would we not want someone we know to know Christ? Absolutely. As their personal Savior, so they can experience this instead of eternal separation. Well, and again, often when people are very sick or a relative or a close loved one is very sick, they're vulnerable in the sense that they are starting to think about eternal things. I mean, you just can't, you can't avoid that. I mean, I guess some people can, but your heart's so hard, you, you don't think about it. But for the most part, you do think, wow, death. And you, what happens after death? What's going to happen to mom when she dies? What? I've never thought about that. I've never considered that. But now it's time to consider that. And it, it, that at, at point of vulnerability is a time when the Lord can use that in incredible ways, as we, as we represent him. All right, and we're almost out of time. Let's fin try to finish this paragraph. Now, look at verse 12. Now, he's just going to say the same thing, but using figures of speech. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What? The night. Well, that's all the darkness and everything that's associated with sin and the degradation of everything. Sin. But the day is at hand. What day? The return of Jesus. <laughs> the day he promised is at hand. Now, Paul, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. There's no question when you study the epistles of Paul, he had the expectation that he thought you were going to see Jesus return in his lifetime. He really, I think he really believed that. But I mean, he was, you know, well, maybe not, but boy, I, I think so. He's going to come back. And today, you know, you, you have a lot of people. It's, I mean, it's so good. Oh, yeah, that's, that's something we believe, isn't it? You know, that, that's not an afterthought. But once, that should be at the center of your thinking. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> he said, I'm, you don't know the hour. You don't know, but I'm coming back. And then remember what he said, and this is in the Alba Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Be ready and be faithful. You don't know when I'm coming, but I'm coming. And he uses all those parables that teach that. So Paul's saying the same thing. The night is gone. The darkness of sin in this world is gone. But today is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness 
The kingdom of darkness, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, is the kingdom of Satan. Cast off the works of darkness. We used to be in that kingdom and put on the armor. Now that is, he doesn't, he doesn't dwell on this, but the armor of light. What's he referring to? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. The whole armor of God. Which when you study that, you're putting on all the positional truth, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. You're putting on all of the things that characterize you as a believer. Every day you dress for battle. Not literally, but figuratively. And so he said, because we used to be in darkness, now we're light. We dress, we dress the way we're supposed to dress. With the positional truth of who I am in Christ. I'm righteous. I represent truth. I want to sell and on and on and on. Let us walk properly. I'm not sure that's the best translation of that, that Greek term, but I think you get it. Let us walk properly. Let us walk in step with our identity. Let's walk practically the way we are positionally. Do you understand that sentence? Positionally, who am I? I'm identified with being in Christ 242 times in the New Testament. And all that that means, okay, that's your identity. Now walk like that, live like that. So let us walk properly as in the daytime. And now he has a whole bunch of not this, not this, not this. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We put on the armor. My identity in Christ. Now that identity and position is how I'm going to live. And that means that for the Greco-Roman world, and he's writing to people in Rome, for the Greco-Roman world, this hit home. This is exactly, exactly the culture they're coming out of. Drunken orgies. The Greco-Roman mythological gods had associated with their worship like the Bacchanali, the, the, the god Bacchus. You would engage in drunken orgies as you worshipped him. Not any longer. And all the sensuality and sexual immorality, you and I have absolutely no difficulty understanding what he meant. Because the comparison of America, or, or, or more, even more broadly, Western civilization and the Greco-Roman world, there's a lot of parallels. Because, you know, and that's, that hadn't always been the case, but it's very much the case now. Paul says, you don't work in that anymore. That's what it used to be, not anymore. And then finally, he's talking about the internal things, the social things of interpersonal relationships, quarreling and jealousy. He's writing to believers, but these are interpersonal relationship things, quarreling Jealousy. I mean, he could have listed zillions of things, but he just says just two. So he has these these three groupings of two. You understand what I'm saying by that? That this is not, not, not. This is what you used to be, nine longer. Because here's your identity. Your identity does not relate to any of that. Jim, real quick. Uh, did the, uh, what was the impact on the uh, Christian in the Roman Empire? The Romans... Uh, Several of you were ever come to know Christ as Lord. Do you mean through the witness of, of, yes. of the oh I'm oh my goodness, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes. That's a line. Yeah, oh absolutely. I mean it, uh, that was the that was the revolutionary impact 
that the church was having, and, and Rome was starting to notice. And by the second century, getting into the 100s, Rome is trying to understand these guys. Emperor Trajan hires an historian named Livy, and no, excuse me, Pliny, the wrong one, hires a historian named Pliny, write a history of these people. I don't understand them. They're transforming things. I don't understand what's going on. And so Pliny travels around and writes a history. And that's where the guy who says they're turning the world upside down. They're, they're upending everything. And, you know, and, he, and this is what he says later on in his book. I observe something. How they love one another. That's what Paul says. I don't know if people observing evangelical Christianity would say that, because they love one another. Yeah. I don't know if they'd be saying that. <laughs> when Peggy and I came to Christ in the 70s, uh, early 70s, we, we got into church and all that stuff, and we had a lot of friends that were our age, and we used to get together for study, and, and we would sing. A lot of times we were out in our, our home, which is north of Allentown, where I was in school. But anyway, and we used to sing, they will know we are Christian by our love. That was an old chorus of the 1970s. I don't think anybody's saying, I haven't heard that song. They will know we're Christian because I would feel kind of, I'm uneasy about that. They will know we're Christian by our love. We seem to be fighting each other a lot. And, you know, and just kind of dividing. It was just, it was a remarkable time. That was part of the Jesus, it was at that time, it was called the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement, all that stuff. Started in California and swept through the country. But that's, it, it, Solomon says in, 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 in Ecclesiastes, don't talk about the good old days. Literally, that's what he says in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And he, he comments, for they really weren't that good. But I got on the nostalgia of, of Peggy and I. We think back, remember in the 70s, we came to the Lord, and that energy and excitement of the new, new birth and, and all of our friends and, and all of that. And Yeah, but then I said, honey, don't forget what the 70s were like. On the heels of the 60s, you know, you think, they weren't really the good old days, but they were the time. That's when we came to know the Lord. It's just the new energy that was exciting. So Paul is saying that, and then he says, he repeats it, put on, this is a great verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only put on the whole arm of God, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The same message that's in Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24. Put off the old, renew your mind, put on the new. And the new is Jesus. Put on Jesus. I think I told you this. Uh, maybe I didn't. I, I say something. I don't remember, forget where I say it all the time. But when my wife, uh, my wife has a heart condition, autoimmune disease, some other things. But anyway, when she was real sick with all this before we figured her out and medicine things that, that helped her, she was down to about 89 pounds, and I, I would call her each day. I was in leadership at lunch, and, and one time I called. It was really a really hard time for her. And I said, honey, how are you doing? Well, I didn't put my armor on this morning. That was a great, because she honestly would consciously wake up and read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is who I am. Even though I'm sick. And we couldn't get her weight under control. That that then eventually the Lord helped us, and she's doing much better now. But I was just—I thought that what a, my wife is doing something. It's extraordinarily important. Peggy teaches me far more than my seminary professors did. That you know, it's if you believe what you believe, then you will see it in how you live. 
and and how she begins her day still does it. But that was and it was hard. I mean, she was just really difficult. And that's what Paul's saying: put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In, in Galatians chapter five, Paul explains this because we're in a war between the flesh and the spirit. Which one wins? The one you feed. That's an old Baptist minister would say that. You got two dogs inside of you fighting. Which one wins? The one you feed. And I thought that's that's a great that's a great application of what Paul is saying. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's the same thing he says in Galatians five. Put on Jesus each day. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh because that's at a war in you. It's against you. It, it's your enemy. Don't feed it. You got to have a strategy for holiness. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's a fantastic way to end this chapter. A reminder, future promises of God affect how we live today. And here's how we're to live today. Put on Jesus. Put on his armor. Don't satisfy the desires of God. All right. I think I'm going to end because chapter 14 is a whole, whole new topic. And we're going to spend a, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on chapter 14, because this chapter is extremely important for 2022. How do we disagree with one another as Christians? In the non-moral issues of life, because the moral issues, that's what you've been talking about, are clearly stated in the scripture. Don't be afraid to disobey those. And he's going to use some illustrations in the early church about things that were not moral issues, but were dividing the church. It's, it's messed up. I love to teach this stuff. And we'll allude to some things in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10 as well. All right. You with me? I wish they were with Paul. It's a great yep, set. with you. Good. All right, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll let you go. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Oh, thank you for gifting him to the church, saving him on the Damascus Road, and all of his brilliance, all his training in, in Greco-Roman world, culture, and philosophy, and in the theology, and then as he reconstructed all of that with the proposition that Jesus is his Messiah, Lord, you gave him to the church as a fantastic gift. Thank you for writing the book of Romans under the inspiration of the Spirit. Thank you that we benefit from that. It challenges us. And I thank you for each man here as we work through this together, as we are watching you use your word to transform us, to become more and more like Jesus. Where we do think of Chuck and Ellen today, we, we, we know that you are at work. The tragedy of a fallen, broken world is that people get sick, that people begin to deteriorate and ultimately go to be with you. That's hard. There's grieving. It's hard to do this. It's hard to go through this. We know that Ellen is uh, soon going to be with you, I assume, if she's in hospice care. Give Chuck that, that measure of your grace the power of your comfort that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and all of the needs that he has emotionally, physically, and spiritually, his cares for, and in one very real sense, will soon say goodbye to his wife. But the great promise of Scripture is that he'll be reunited with her, they will, they will enjoy the eternal life in a new resurrected glorified body, the great promise that Jesus has made to us. So help him to find comfort in that great truth so we commit them to you. And all the other needs that are on in this group that I, most of them I don't know about. I need each one of those according to your perfect will as well. Dismiss us from your blessing as we go our separate ways. May we represent you well in Christ's name, amen.